Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Mark Gibson. Mark, thank you very much. You did a great job of allowing a pause between the K and the G at the end of your <laughs> first name and the beginning of your last. So you weren't Mar Gibson. <laughs> Which well, one... I have often had... You know, people strangely have difficulty um, um, getting sometimes by my name. I used to people used to say, "Oh, you're called Mac." No, I had to say, "No, Mark." Um, yeah. So I love it. I'm a bit careful to, to make sure that I get it right in a way that people can you know, understand. That was fantastic. I loved it. Mm. So I wonder if you could tell us, just as an opening gambit on my part, I guess, what's preoccupying you at the moment, what you're thinking about, what you're working on, what matters to Mar Gibson, Mac Gibson and Mark? <laughs> well, um, I suppose in a word you might say neoliberalism. I, I mean, it's a, it's a very problematic term and one that I've you know, written about and thought about somewhat sceptically, but I think it does articulate many people's kind of concerns about the present and particularly in relation to institutions and um, so I'm interested in sets of questions around that and it's also I suppose although I sometimes don't use the, the word it's an optic which can be brought to understand a lot of what I think about and uh, try to do not not only I should say my um, you know research work and writing but also because I've been a, a sort of middle academic manager um, for my sins. <laughs> and um, so you're at the kind of junction point or stress point between what you might call sort of collegial understandings of the university and managerial understandings, and you have to inhabit both of those. And um, so it, it forces you to think quite a lot about some of these things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because I just think it's such a tension and such a problem. Can I ask, without giving away names or particular crises, could you give us an example, and it might be an imaginary one, of having to navigate between those two statuses, as it were, as working academic and working manager? Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose one of the things, if, if you're working with teams, is that they uh, are often very unhappy with the state of the university <laughs> and that, and that I, I've always seen my, my one of my roles as sort of like um, managing morale making sure people are happy because I don't think that if they think if they're not happy they're not going to be creative and productive um, so but but there's a whole lot of stuff which comes down from above which makes them unhappy <laughs> and so how, how do you kind of mediate that I mean I think uh, some some of it, you know, once you in those spaces, you do understand some of the imperatives that are operating in the universities. Uh, that is managerial imperatives. Mm. People's salaries have got to be paid. Um, you've got to find some way to do that. Um, there's you, you've got to, you've got to be concerned about um, student numbers and student income through student numbers. All of those things. If if you're not, then people's jobs are at stake. So that's that's significant. But the way. It, the way these things are relayed up, up and down are very unsatisfactory and often happen in sort of fairly blunt and ugly ways, which, um, you know, I, I think cause a lot of unnecessary stress. 
but uh, it's it's a difficult thing to navigate. Yeah, no, that's a great example, and I think uh, tactfully put as well. Um, so <laughs> this word neoliberal, neoliberalism, and so on, you've said that you've had some questions about it. You've made criticisms of it in print, but it still has some utility for you. Yeah, I think so. I think, well, one of the, I suppose, what I would say as an insight of cultural studies is that um, you've got to respect people's sense of felt reality written and and I think or lived reality. And um, I think neoliberalism is one of the terms of the moment. I mean, it's, it's, it's of this moment that, that people feel it expresses something that um, is important and some some kind of um, it, it, within it there's also a kind of utopian notion that things could be better as well I mean there's it it, it, it identifies certain kind of bads about the way things are and encourages us to think about what where what how otherwise they might be what are the bad things that are well in, I think the key thing relative um, yeah. I think I think the key thing is just the dominance of economics as a discourse and its displacement of other ways of understanding the world, and that's important, of course, for cultural studies because um, cultural studies main ensemble concepts comes out of you know political thinking and and cultural thinking, and um, to the extent that those are displaced by um, economic thinking and more specifically the model of the market, I suppose that's. That that's the the marketization or the 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 tendency to see everything in in terms of a market or quasi market or you know modeled on 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 markets market thinking. Hmm. And what are the positive things that emerge from the critique of neoliberalism? You said that there were some good things that come from. It. <laughs> well, I mean, there is that um, utopian um, idea. I mean, I, I do think that there's a problem in some of the uh, thinkings about neoliberalism in that it, it, it becomes totalising and it becomes our whole world and you, you can't imagine your way out of it. And, and so it becomes a kind of grievance, uh, you know, at, where without, without much idea of transformation, I, I'm kind of shifting the... I'm interested in shifting the thinking a little bit. And I've been influenced recently by... A, a economist who's not a cultural studies figure at all, a development economist called Eileen uh, Grable, who wrote, has written a great book, uh, When Things Don't Fall Apart. And it's about the kind of the end of neoliberalism as a development paradigm in development economics. Um, or, or not the end, but the, the end of its authoritative moment where it could confidently assert itself and where the, the, the Bretton Woods um, institutions were... Preeminent and respected, and seen as the you know uh, the way to go, and so that's kind of somewhat fallen apart. And her idea is that if you know, pe people's question generally is how what's replacing it, and that you know there's, there's nothing that has kind of come in and 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 uh, uh, provided a paradigmatic alternative. But her idea is that. That's the wrong. That's the wrong question, and we won't. If if we're looking for that, we'll be disappointed. Um, so, what we should be looking for is the way in which all kinds of new connections and relationships and um, formations are occurring in the kind of ruins, if you like, of of that um, that um, 
neoliberal um, consensus. Yes, just for a bit of context for people, towards the end of the war, what people of my generation, perhaps even Marx, call the war, but I've learned now we have to call the Second World War. In 1944, there was a meeting at Bretton Woods, a little town in New Hampshire, where the so-called great powers of the day, minus the USSR, constructed what would become the global financial infrastructure of the post-war period. And this included ideas about stabilizing the value of currency, which produced the International Monetary Fund, uh, ideas about assisting the, in inverted commas, development of poorer countries, and that helped to produce the World Bank as a lender, and an investor, and uh, was, in a way, the key set of international Keynesian levers until 1971, when uh, the Republican administration of the United States under Richard Nixon pulled the plug on uh, fixed rates of exchange, and that had a catatonic effect on the world along with the fact that the petro-states like West Germany, Japan, Britain, the United States, as well as the so-called petro-states, i.e. the big oil producers, clashed shortly thereafter, sending the price of oil skyrocketing Mm. and thereby creating new conditions for economies. Put together these things the 71 Nixon decision and the oil crisis, a crisis for Keynesianism because it no longer became possible to trade off unemployment against inflation and it no longer became possible to, or it seemed as though it was no longer possible, for demand to be kept high through government stimulus. And -hmm. instead there was a turn to a focus on the supply side of things i.e. the suppression and exploitation of labor and a decline of Keynesian modes of managing the macroeconomy based on what was fancifully deemed to be the model of the firm founded Mm. on the idea of a ratiocinity of selfish um, consumer uh, in Mm. contest with a ratiocinity of selfish producer. So that produced the so-called Washington Consensus which picked up on some of the institutions of Bretton Woods. So the IMF reigned supreme for a long time. The World Bank reigned supreme in the incredible debt regimes they imposed on the global south in return for God knows what, uh, but compromised the idea of governments managing demand. So Mm. just to give a quick, uh, slightly overly elaborate uh, end note, and neoliberalism became the expression of this academically, intellectually, uh, as something to be celebrated by many thinkers and condemned by others. And as you say, became a somewhat totalizing discourse for people on the left like me who wanted to deride uh, what they saw as uh, an increased mass exploitation of labor mm. and a an historic redistribution of income upwards in wealthy countries. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the point is, it's it's of some use to you. And when you're you're now back 
as an ordinary academic worker or you're still a middle manager? I'm just in transition. I'm just about just leaving a kind of an academic a management role. And right. Now, returning look, to, hmm. you kept publishing. You kept researching while in that I tried to, yes. managerial role. At a somewhat lower rate than you might otherwise, yeah. Hmm. Was it difficult at night or on a Sunday afternoon or whenever you had a bit of time to think about your scholarly endeavours when you were devoting so much energy and so many hours to management? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, they, those things compete with each other, certainly. Um, but I, I don't think I've, I've ever been... I've never been a super productive, you know... Um, I, I, I'm rather a slow writer, let's say, and, and perhaps a slow thinker <laughs> as well, but... Um, um, I'm, I haven't been, you know, I'm not one of those people who pumps out three books a year. I've never been like that and probably wouldn't be even if I didn't have anything else on, on my plate. So I, I mull on things for quite a long time and then try to, try to come out with something I'm, I'm happy with. Yeah. Well, you're being very modest, Mark, <laughs> if I may say so, and somewhat inaccurate in a description of your own productivity these words are so oppressive in so many ways i think so mm. um in terms of the present or the immediate future rather you very kindly sent me the introductory chapter to what looks like a pretty big and path-breaking new book that you and some collaborators have mm. produced and the collaborators have both academic and cultural production backgrounds Yes. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that book, which I assume will be out in the new year, 2020. It's out in February, yeah. yeah it's, it's titled, the title is Fringe to Famous, um, Australian Cultural Production After the Creative Industries. Um, and it's, re- it's about the relation between small scenes of independent cultural production and the main, what you might call the mainstream. These are very broad brush terms. Yeah, of course, but we, we make it slightly more precise by adopting um, Bourdieuian ter- terminology, the, the, the market of limited production and the, or the field of limited production, the field, field, the field of extensive production. So when we're talking about the small scenes, we're talking about relations between people who are friends and peers, uh, intimate audiences. Um, so... You might think of, you know, musical examples where bands play in, in small pubs to people who are within, likely within their social circles. Or we do we do a chapter on um, comedy and we look at some of the origin of Australian television comedy in the small theatre scene in in inner north of in inner Melbourne in the, in the sixties and seventies, and places like the the Pram Factory and. Um, uh, you know, little little places where, and, and student reviews as well, where people are um, basically um, standing up in front of people they, they know or who are very close to those they know and developing a sense of value, like an idea of something which is funny, which is insightful or whatever. So that's that's the small scene. But then it, it, it can then move out into, um, into larger for, formats, like in the case of comedy, um, the television um, comedy shows, which often had their roots in, the, in those kind of small scenes. So how does that translation occur? What's going on there? Um, and I suppose we're trying to get away from too 
tendencies. One is a kind of romantic tendency, which is that um, when the small scene moves into the into the um, into generally marketized relations, um, there's something lost. There's an authenticity which was there, which is lost. Um, and the opposite is a kind of an anti-romantic tendency, which has been very strong in recent years, particularly under the um, the kind of um, the banner of creative industries, that really there's nothing different between the small and the large scene. They're all forms of market development. And the, the small scene is is could be thought of as a kind of an incubator or business startup for it, which is always always already moving towards some kind of marketized larger form, um, which kind of, so there's a tendency in the anti-romantic reaction to kind of refuse the distinction between the small and the large scene as if they're, they're really all part of the same thing. So, so we're, we're, the, the idea of the book was to find a compromise point between those two uh, versions. So we, we're not romantics in the sense that those musicians, comedians, uh, we also look at indigenous filmmakers, um, games developers um, and uh, uh, fashion design. We look at we do a case study on uh, mambo and surfwear. Um, you know where the, where there is this uh, crossover into into larger markets. It's not a sellout. It's a hybridization. We we, we think about it as in terms of of a kind of hybridization between the small and there's there's actually artistic um, possibilities that can be found in relating to larger audiences as well. Um, so it's not just, um, it shouldn't be thought of only as a kind of an economic move. You know, you've got something good, you think it might sell to larger markets. So, so you, 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 you sell, you, you get a, an agent or something like that and you, and you develop the, um, you develop your business in, in the, in the larger marketplace. There's also, for a lot of artists, there's an interest, there's a, there's a kind of creative interest in trying to engage, um, a larger audiences and persuade them of the value of what you've you've developed within your crucible. You like your small the small scene where where it all started out. So that that's in a in a nutshell, I suppose, what we try to do with that book. And I'm quite proud of it because we do, you know, as you say, Toby, we do work with. Um, you know, I, I suppose I'm the most academic, although um, Chris McAuliffe is quite a considerable art um, scholar as well. He's done a lot of. But and and Toby uh, Tony Moore, who's my longtime collaborator, has um, he's now been an academic for quite a long time. But he has roots in um, as as an ABC documentary maker and a publisher. So he's got he thinks in quite a different way to, to what I do. Mm. Um, and uh, so I think empirically it's quite rich because it's got all of that the stuff that I couldn't really provide. But also. Um, in terms of like that conceptual architecture that I've just described, you know, that's something that I've I've been able to contribute to to that project. So and I think the result's quite quite a good good outcome or output, as the um, <laughs> the neoliberal managers would say. <laughs> this is the hat you've almost discarded, but is still that's right. it's <laughs> invisible to me, but it's there. It's like Roger Moore in The Saint when he looks up at the end of the opening to each episode and magically a halo appears and then magically disappears. Your little managerial hat is peeking out, but I can't quite grasp it. <laughs> so um, in terms of the conceptual architecture, to use the, the term you just deployed, was that something that you went into the project with or did it emerge 
from talking to your collaborators and from some of the research that was undertaken by the team? That's a bit of a combination. You know, there's something that I've, things that I've, I mean, Tony um, had this idea because one of the origins of the book was actually in his um, uh, activism within the ABC in the in the 90s at the moment of postmodernism. And he, um, at, along with some others within the ABC, who were, they, they got some of their inspiration from actually cultural studies figures like Mackenzie Walk and Catherine Lumby and um, Mark Davis and other people who were um, spinning Foucauldian sorts of ideas at that time. Um, but they they were reform agents within the ABC and they were particularly critical of a kind of, I suppose, a precious anti, um, anti-commercialism within the ABC, uh, which they thought was, um, you know, stultifying and, and tended to enforce particular sort of style, stylistic conventions um, and, and prevent and, and block experimentation. So that it had that kind of origin. Then there's, an, there's, a, there's another kind of origin that in ideas that I've played around with for quite a long time, um, you know, try, trying to find a kind of, I suppose everything, almost everything I've done is tried to prevent um, sort of black and white uh, oppositional forms mm-hmm. And to, and to to insist on their gray the gray middle middle ground in and and find ways of kind of articulating that and bringing that out. Um, and just so, a quick so, note: so the the ABC is an acronym for Australian Broadcasting Corporation. For its first fifty years or so, it was Australian Broadcasting Commission, which is a key public broadcaster akin to the BBC. Sorry, Mark, just uh, go, right. go. Yeah, yeah. sorry, I, I, I'm not sufficiently conscious of our international audience. Thanks, Toby. Yeah. yeah. And, and yes. uh, so he he had that history, which is very interesting. Was there anything in, I guess it was mostly interview-based, the research? Yes, right? yes, it was. Yeah. Was there anything that emerged that surprised you? Well, I mean, one of the things that surprised us a little and which, you know, ended up, confirming the thing was because there's a kind of the the creative industries um idea is that really the only people who refuse or try to refuse market relations are kind of precious artists uh, people who are who are kind of um have this very romantic idea of um you know of of uh, pure artistic practice uh, and it shouldn't be sullied by the market um and so there's this idea that that's the only point at which the contradiction between art and commercial cultural production would ever arise. One of the things which I found very striking in our interviews was that, um, you know, the idea of contradiction between commercial imperatives and artistic imperatives is very strong amongst those who are very successful. Um, so, so one of the um, one of the figures we interviewed was Steve Weizard, who was who's since become a an academic uh, collaborator who's got a PhD and has become Professor Steve Weizan, Um and his um, his joint. We've got a new project with him on Australian comedy, um, but um, he was also in in the Fringe to Famous project. He was an interview talent, um, and again, for those who don't know, um, Steve Weizan was in the nineties one one of the most successful commercial tele, you know um, media talents in Australia. He was. Um, Gold Logie recipient, which is the highest commercial television kind of awards. 
he did extremely well in business terms. He developed his own company, Artist Services, with a with a uh, a partner, um, who and and sold that for for many millions of dollars when when he he, he gave it up. But so so he's he's not he's not the kind of artist in the garret holding on to some romantic idea <laughs> of, of art. But 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 in his account of the relation between himself and the, the commercial broadcasters, Channel Seven. There was, there was a lot of tension there. You know, the, the, there were creative ideas that um, that he and his collaborators were working on, and and that often rubbed up very very much against the the conservative um, business minded approaches of the of the, the TV, television execs. Um, so it's that that kind of tension is not there only in in the sort of you know university context or in some small avant garde arts environment, but it's there in the heart of. The, the most successful, the most commercial kind of uh, cultural industries, you find this you find this tension existing. Yeah, there was a great story that Steve told about an episode of uh, Fast Forward where he uh, just brought the, he and the team just broadcast a, a wedding video of one of the one of the crew, um, which was wasn't produced in any way. It was just raw, and as he said, it was absolutely shit house, uh, if I can use that expression, um, viewing. Um, but it, it, it was done really just to to uh, antagonise the network, and it, it was. It was... <laughs> That's a. So, so these are the kind of things, and I think anyone who knows anything about you know the music industry knows that even very big name successful acts, there's this constant tension between the the industry and and, sure. um, and the, the business hardheads and the creatives. And just getting back to the connection such as it is or was between if you like organic avant-garde art making as broadly defined and its commodification corporatization or whatever right regarding Mm -hmm. neither of these as good or bad but simply saying there has been a dynamic is it still there so you know the book begins the part that i read with reference to a, a music outfit that yes, started out in art mm. school mm. Yes. and then moved into music but some of its members have continued to make art in in the, the sense of things like fashion in a commercial idiom so that's that's the foundational sort of myth of the book or story of the book from the 70s yeah. is that sort mm. of thing and you mentioned the pram factory in melbourne as a drama site does that still go on in the same way well, uh, we argue that it does. Yes, I mean it's it's fractured, um, and, and people, because I mean, what, one of the ideas of you know the the kind of alternative art making um, that people have strongly in their mind is the counterculture, and and then the echoes of the counterculture. So you have punk, which is kind of a, an echo of the, of the counterculture, critical of it, while also adopting some of the the same sorts of uh, ideas of uh, of revolution and through art and and transformation. Um, and, and people look around now and they don't see anything like that. Um, so but we think they kind of draw the wrong conclusion in, th- in saying that there is, it's not happening anymore. There's, there's, there's really a, there's that kind of, uh, I suppose, electricity or tension between um, alternative art making and commercial production has, been, has somewhat been lost. But um, we, we think that it's, it's just... Fragmented, so there's lots of people doing all kinds of small, interesting things, but they don't recognize each other necessarily through a big 
uh, rubric like the counterculture or like the punk moment or the, these kind of things. Um, so, the, so they're, they're less visible, but they're still there. And, um, and, uh, and that, that kind of hybridization between artistic and commercial, um, or in some cases also public service, you know, more uh, governmental frameworks. Um, it's still, it's still very much, um, present. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, we'd have to say that our, our whole analysis was only relevant to the past. <laughs> and we're wanting to say that it's 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 relevant now. We've made a bit of a pitch to you know influence um, um, Australian cultural policy. There's a kind of slightly little aperture there, little moment with the um, with a with a Labor government still uh, not that old, um, and they've come out with a new cultural policy revive and. Um, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has kind of relation to some of these uh, fringe moments in, in, you know, particularly in music. There's a sort of idea of DJ elbow, spinning discs and hanging out with artists and so on. So um, there's, a, there's a potential opening there to, to kind of get some of these ideas taken up, I suppose, in, in government. Uh- Mark, I need to stop recording for just a second, if I may, and then we'll come back. Um, So sorry for that interruption, Mark. Thanks very much. I think we're sorted out now. Um, You mentioned a new cultural policy and a prime minister who's a bit like Tony Blair with Oasis in 1997, very embarrassing. Uh, The England cricket team of 2005. Uh, the cat's gone inside the sofa. This is worrying. <laughs> I suppose, I mean, the question would be whether Anthony Albanese is a kind of um, uh, Tony Blair redux. And the, crit- the critical reading, you know, for those who are, who are critical of the creative industry's idea and um, new labour and third way politics, those sorts of themes, um, you know, some, many of them would see the current Labour government in Australia in somewhat similar terms. Okay. Um, yeah. And of course, one could argue that the the Blair model and the Clinton model were themselves derived from the sellout of the Labour Party in Australia. Yeah, that's right. A lot of, yeah, crop fertilisation, <laughs> adoption of ideas. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> now, the the book, in part, it, I think, is saying there's this post-creative industries prospect. Mm-hmm. So could you tell us a little bit about the discourse of the creative industries and why there needs to be a post? Right. Well, um, <laughs> um, I mean, this is something you're quite an expert on, Toby, but um, uh, I think we have an idea that a lot of the origins of some contemporary, some problems, current problems are, in reaction to the counterculture and particularly to the kind of romanticism I was referring to earlier. So the idea um, that, that there was, there was sort of pure countercultural countercultural art or um, a pure political and artistic project, which was then commercialized and it's, and, and, and in some ways neutered um, and it's, it's potential damaged. I'm talking to, you know, this is, when when that turn began to occur around the seventies and eighties, um, there there was then in reaction to that a kind of a correction and, and a, a legitimate kind of 
uh, argument made by people like Simon Frith in music was was a key figure, and we talk a bit about uh, fr Frithism as a thing that um, really the uh, um, you know what was going. If you looked into supposedly pure um, countercultural forms, they they generally had some kind of relation to the market already. You know, there's there's no kind of pure moment. So there was a there was a kind of um, and and there's also uh, uh, again legitimate observations that sometimes the notion of authenticity was very problematic, and it was had certain kind of gender um, dimensions. It was the the kind of the 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 uh, I think. Frith has lines around the kind of you know um, horse, the 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 the, um, the male, white male countercultural rocker kind of you know bellowing um, lines about saving the world and these kind of things. So so there was that that kind of critique was made, um, and to the we would not disagree with much of that. But the problem is that then then the way that became began to develop further momentum was taken further, and so. So what you end up with in in the in in the twenty first century, around you know the the kind of creative in, industries idea is that really, if, if there's no distinction between art and the market, then you can just say that everything is, is the market, and you can you can you can reduce cultural analysis to art to to a business analysis effectively, and um, I suppose that's I mean at some level that's a bit. Um, there's a kind of just a, an emotional reaction to that, and in writing the book, you know, some we've been involved in in cultural production ourselves. I mean, uh, um, Chris McAuliffe, one of our co-authors, co longtime art curator, um, Maura Edmund has been a multimedia um, uh, creator. Tony, Tony Moore, I mentioned before, was a documentary maker, and so on. So. That we couldn't kind of stomach the loss, if you like, of an idea of cultural value as something distinct and not reducible to its economic value. Um, so that's, I suppose, why you would want to get beyond, you know, find some kind of post-creative industries uh, perspective would be would be that. And that there's obviously quite a widely shared reaction. Um, um, there's a whole. Um, lot, particularly in, in the UK, there's a lot of um, significant figures who have who have reacted against it. I was a colleague for quite a long time at Monash of Justin O'Connor's and absorbed quite a lot of his ideas. And he was a, a key um, critic uh, internationally of the creative industries idea. And, and I think that you know, broadly, it would be somewhat along the lines of what I was saying that you've got you've got to keep a, a place, you've got to keep some kind of idea of cultural value. As a distinct thing, um, and uh, and and creative the creative industries discourse or idea um, tended to well more than tended to it, it deliberately kind of um, tried tried to reverse that idea and uh, and uh, so so it kind of started if you like in a in a place that we understand that kind of Frithian moment you know the postmodern so called the postmodern moment of the nineties. Um, and a lot of cultural studies was very much formed in that moment as well, and really important ideas about um, a, you know a greater sympathy and engagement with commercial popular culture and the the, the 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 culture that people everyday people experience, which is much more commonly absorbed through uh, commercial forms than through um, public service media and and, and other non market uh, forms of media. 
so so that's the that's i suppose the motivation is is to get to get beyond it how do you do that um well we have an idea at the end of the book um we talk about um well i mean, suppose the the key idea would be the the notion of hybridization as a as a way of understanding the relation between art and commerce that that you have hybrid forms which are both commercial and artistic um but where those terms still make sense as they they describe different things they're not they're not describing the same thing and those hybridizations are quite complex and always fraught um but nevertheless valuable uh, yeah that that's the kind of the argument that we try to make and mark it seems to me that perhaps with the creative industries discourse there's an old style confusion between is and ought so on the one hand it seems to be describing something that it claimed was in existence on the mm. other hand it was hortatory seeking yes. to bring something mm. into existence yes yes i think that's right yes yeah, yeah. Um, it's so. a common argument to deploy <laughs> yes and I have a couple of questions more that I'd like to pose to you. And then after I've done that, I'd like to throw it open for you to add or maybe even subtract from the things we've been discussing. Would that be okay? Sure. Yes. So first question is, I want to take us back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary. Maybe they say it in T20 cricket commentary. I don't know. Into your past and talk about... Give people some ideas of where they can find the early Mar Mac Mark Gibson, <laughs> middle period Gibson, in terms of publications and so on. Well, um, the, you know, my main publication before Fringe to Famous was a 2007 book, Culture and Power, a History of Cultural Studies, which I don't know how many people are engaging with at the moment, but it, but it is actually quite formative in some of my current thinking. And it, it goes to that point that I tried to make before about um, trying to bring out the middle ground, the kind of grey, the grey area. Um, and it, it was a study of the concept of power and, and particularly the, the uptake of the concept of power in cultural studies. When I say uptake, it might be a bit surprising to some people because many defini definitions of cultural studies would say, and this is commonly commonly said, is that uh, cultural studies studies the relation between culture and power. So the implication is that power was already always already there as part of the the project or the formation. Um, one one of the discoveries in the development of that book, which started off as a PhD thesis, was going back and doing a bit of a job on the concept of power and cultural studies, and looking at some of the very early figures like Richard Hoggart and the early Raymond Williams. And finding that there was no mention there of, of power at all, they didn't they didn't use the term, um, the word, and they didn't have a theory of power. And even I think, particularly in the case of Hoggart, it would be hard to read out of him a kind of a, a, a theory of power. People do that a bit with uh, with Williams, who was a more complex figure, and he, had a, he did have a relation to Marxism and so on, a more complex relation, I think, than many people would would believe, but. The, the, that set the stage, if you like, for a story about how did the concept of power come into cultural studies? Now, who brought it in at what stage and why? There's a great line, actually, from 
uh, Stuart Hall about the, the relation of cultural studies to Marxism. And it was really through Marxism that theories of power began gained currency in cultural studies. But he talks about how at Birmingham, the, the Birmingham Centre of Cultural Studies in, this, in the 70s, they walked around the whole perimeter of European thought in order not to be Marxists. They kind of knew Marxism was there, but they, they tried everything else. And it was this kind of thing that they, they, they tried everything else in order not not to be that, um, but it, but ended up kind of arriving there in in a in a certain kind of way in the end. Uh, but I think that there, there's a much more interesting story about why the concept of power was taken up in cultural studies, um, and uh, you know that it it goes to the sort of cultural history of of the, of the 70s and 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 the way in which people began to understand social relations, which was different from the way they had. Um, that understood them before, and the concept of power is a key way in which people did that. So anyway, that's that's an that's a, an older Mark Gibson book. <laughs> Mark Paul's <laughs> Gibson, as he has now be known. That's P A U S E, not P A W S. Despite the fact that before recording, you did confide to me that you have a, a feline history. Of, of cats when growing up or in your current life or whatever. Oh, yes, yes. I've, I've, there have always been cats in our family. Sadly, only um, this year, in fact, we lost a cat. Um, he oh. got old and um, had had a problem. We took him to the vet and they said, oh, I think it's curtains. So we had to watch him being put down, which is a bit distressing. But, that yeah. is, that's very, very mm. sad indeed. I've had to mm. do, as I said to you before we started recording, I, this is my first time bringing up baby um, mm. I'm telling you, adolescence is tough. So, <laughs> Mark, my last question before throwing it open to you to add or subtract or whatever is to ask you uh, what you see as the present and the future of cultural studies, because you've been involved not only as a scholar and an administrator of it, in a sense, but also as an editor and mm. Uh, a person involved in conferences and associations. So you've got, uh, if you like, intellectual and institutional knowledge and affiliation to, hmm. to pull on. Where do you see it now? And this might be about Australia, where you live, or more generally, and what do you think lies ahead? That's a very difficult question. I mean, I think you asked that question recently to Stephen Mucci. I was listening to that podcast. Oh, yes. Yes, I did. And he, he, like I, had been to the Adelaide Cultural Studies Conference, yes. the, the annual conference of the Cultural Studies Association of Australia, which I've been a long-time um, attender at um, and for, for some time an office holder. And as you say, I was for 13 years I was editor of the journal associated with um, CSAA, that's Continuum um, Journal of Media and Cultural Studies, which started off at Murdoch University in, in Perth a long time ago, an institution that we both spent some time at. Um, but, I mean, there's a lot of hand-wringing and there's, I suppose it's, it's more become resignation, but um, what's, what's become of cultural studies? Uh, and it's there, there was a moment in the 90s where it seemed like a very um, ascendant, um, ebullient kind of... Um, um, field, um, maybe you know, a high point might have been that conference at Illinois, um, in which uh, uh, Larry Grossberg and others were involved in organizing it. There was the big book that came out of it, and I think there was a heroic line on the cover something like, If you intend to keep living in America, you need to read this book. 
Um, it had that kind of America-centric um, idea about itself. But, um, you know, there was a kind of a almost a celebrity system too associated with cultural studies. The big figures were were made, were, there was a kind of an aura around them. And I think a lot of that's gone. And the Adelaide Cultural Studies Conference that I and Stephen went to recently was quite small. And there's a bit of, there's always a bit of anxiety about whether anyone's going to put their hand up to run the next one. Um, so it's it's kind of a marginal activity. Is it like the Commonwealth Games, Mark? Yeah, it, it is a little like the Commonwealth Games. <laughs> Who can we find that will <laughs> we'll run it? And and I suppose the the relation between cultural studies and the Commonwealth, you know, could be there's not a bad metaphor there as well. But but at the same time, um, you know, cultural studies has this enormous diaspora. You know, it's, it's sort of like it's it's not only it's it's kind of lost some of its energy at its heartland or what, what bears the name. But it's also everywhere, uh, and so so often when I go to you know events in other completely other kind of contexts, um, you find really you know, sort of cultural studies, what I would describe as cultural studies um, inputs. Uh, at um, maybe to give an example, at RMIT we've got a a very well funded uh, centre of excellence um, called the Automated. Um, de- automated decision making in society is basically studying algorithms and the legal and cultural um, institutional regimes around al- algorithms and how they should be responded to. It's a very timely thing, obviously. Um, but I've been to some of the events and I know a lot of people who are involved in ADMS, as we call it. And it does strike me that sometimes um, some of the conferences are sort of like cultural studies conference with, with, a, with a particular kind of focus, which is obviously always coming back to the question of algorithms. But um, in the opening conference, for example, had um, as a keynote, Melissa Gregg, who's had a lot, you know, did a PhD in cultural studies, um, has worked for a long time in the, in the States, in the, in the tech industries for Intel. But, and, and there were other figures as well who were bringing in kind of developing world perspectives on how, um, uh, automated decision-making algorithms may affect them and the, the, their their interests and concerns around gender in developing countries, um, poor and marginalised groups, these kind of things. A, a lot of the the language that's used there, and uh, now I think that the people involved in ADMS would, would completely reject any association with cultural studies and they tend to often to think of it as a rather a, an old-fashioned, you know, lefty 70s thing, which is no longer any very relevant and those who hang on to it are kind of you know soft-headed or uh, but 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 you know when you look at what they're doing it it could it could in many ways be described i think as cultural studies so uh, and i think you'll find that in many other it's across sociology it's across you know, anthropology um it's across a lot of journalism as well there's found you know there's there's um, things that have their origins ideas that have their origins in in, in cultural studies. So it's had this, I mean, one of the old cliches about cultural studies is that it's sort of victim of its own success. That it became so influential that it lost its identity. It's sort of like it's everywhere but nowhere. I think there's some truth in that. <laughs> wow. But the fact that you're doing a podcast, Tony, which is, with Toby, which is um, titled Cultural Studies and which is bringing us back to some of these questions about the field and where it's come from and what what it is. Uh, I think that's also an important thing to do. It's one of the reasons why I continue to attend 
named cultural studies conferences. <laughs> well, I'm very glad you've come into the pod, Mark. I should have asked you when I was doing it from 2010 to 2015, because it's been fun with some people revisiting their yeah. thoughts 10 years mm. earlier. Mm. So last thing, I wanted to throw it open to you to see if there are things that we haven't mentioned that you'd like to talk about or things we have mentioned where you'd like to add something. Well, the only thing I suppose I would mention that we haven't talked about is the the project which is just starting up uh, on comedy. So I've got a big um, ARC linkage project with Toby, uh, um, Tony Moore, uh, Steve Weizart and, and Pender uh, on um, uh, Australian comedy as an agent of change. Uh, and it's, linkage, it's a linkage project with um, the major partner in terms of putting in cash is the is Art Centre Melbourne, who has a terrific um, collection of uh, materials from stage present performances in, in Melbourne over many years, including the, the whole Barry Humphreys frock collection um, and, and many other things as well, which they're keen to have better known about. Uh, but we're also... Uh, uh, got a, got a partnership with the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, um, with the um, uh, Victorian and Adelaide and South Australian state libraries, um, and a number of others. So that's quite an exciting thing that I'm I'm uh, I've uh, going to put energies into. And I'm interested in comedy as a way of, you know, and also in relation to some of those things we were talking before about neoliberalism. Because I think one of the things you might say about neoliberalism is rather humorless. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if we're permitted to use the term, I mean, the things which people describe as neoliberal tend to be uh, managerial discourses are, are quite humorless. Um, and I think that humour is really important. And it also connects back to some of those earlier um, uh, sort of very fertile moments in cultural studies the, the sort of the Bakhtinian interest in carnival and th those sorts of things, which I think uh, was the, the potential of that's been somewhat lost. So I'm interested in um, in reconnecting that, that those pieces and and thinking about humour and hopefully we can have some fun while doing it as well. <laughs> well, you've given us a, a upturned faces at the end there, Mark, <laughs> with much of what you've said, but especially saying that you see a valuable diffusion of cultural studies ideas and agents, as it were, and also you've got this exciting new project. So thank you very much for the conversation today, and I hope that you'll come back to the pod maybe when you've got a downturned face from sadness at the end of the comedy project. Sure, I'd love to, yeah. And thanks. Toby, for this conversation, it's been great.